Hello, I'm Mr. Movies of the Famous. Hello, I'm Mr. Movies of the Famous Film Twitter.com, and this is the Mr. Movies Podcast. Alright, so, Adam, I've wanted you on the show for like three years, and it's finally happened. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm excited. Thank you so much, yeah. And I, I loved, I've loved the show for as long, so. Oh, <laughs> thank you. That, that makes one of you. I need everyone else who's <laughs> liked the show this long to tell me now. <laughs> Please. I've sunk thousands of hours into this shit. <laughs> Um, I, I've wanted you on the show for a long time because I I have been like I think tormenting is the right word. Where anytime I find bad science, I love to send it to you. Yeah. And I think that in a in a turn from what I wanted to do to you, which was force you to watch the movie AI and then tell me. Oh man. <laughs> um, I decided to do what is probably like the single most in your wheelhouse movie that's ever been made <laughs> and that's, I, it's tough for me to think of another one yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's like either this or first reformed i guess but even oh, then sure. you know two very different schools of thought i was gonna say two very different takes on yeah it's actually a really interesting comparison point there yeah i mean both of them involve direct action of some sort i think you could say <laughs> but um one is hopelessly pessimistic which i think is mm-hmm. while like realistic i don't think it's the most productive way to conduct yourself and mm-hmm. then there is Nausicaa, which is the movie that we're talking about. I'm, you guys already saw the episode title, um, mm-hmm. which I think is not overtly optimistic. I do think that, you know, it's definitely optimistic, but it's also incredibly realist because right. the movie spans like a thousand years of history. Right. Or, or at least it takes that into account. And I think before we even go into it, we have to talk uh, specifically the aesthetic that this movie embraces, which is one called solar punk. <laughs> right. So yeah. h- how many of the punk subgenres do you know? Oh, could I name? Oh, man, is yeah. this... Uh, let's see. Cyberpunk. Uh, yeah, probably I the pl- most popular. I played that game, Cyberpunk. Uh, Was it good? Uh, it's something, man. We should we'll do uh, we'll do a a Patreon about uh, yeah. Um, (laughs) We'll rewatch Johnny and Mnemonic and then we'll yeah. (laughs) Uh, Cyberpunk, steampunk, uh, oh yeah, diesel punk, um, aquapunk, right? Yes, I've heard of aquapunk. Crust punk, crust. Yeah, we're shifting more into where this is getting very different now. Punk, (laughs) pop punk, yeah. Uh, there, there, hope, hope punk is one that people have yeah about yeah hope punk is interesting the others would be like adam punk which is like the oh. jetsons everything say, is yeah. chrome there's scrap punk as well which okay. is uh think like fallout <laughs> it's, sure. yeah. it's awful it sounds like hell on oh Earth. and then adam punk would be like the pre wasteland fallout yeah sort of a, yeah this okay. would be yeah. like like a chrome utopia 
Yeah. Like, like the parents with the... You remember the Jetsons? How they had the spacesuits yeah. that had like the Saturn's rings on the shoulder? It's a lot that's of that. So good, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's the where that's really what we should be. Yeah, yeah. We should we we should just can do we Star pivot? Trek. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> I've seen one whole episode in my life. I watched oh. the first episode of Deep Space Nine and went, I think I'm good. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a tough. That's a really tough place to start. I love Star Trek. That's a really tough place to start with Star Trek. <laughs> I have to be honest with you. Uh, I would be thrilled to do however many hundred episodes we need to do of Star Trek though feel yeah. free to anytime you want to do Star Trek you let me know but yeah don't start with any early season of any Star Trek show is like for a newcomer it's like oh man yeah Shane told me he was like Deep Space Nine's the best of them and I'm like that's where I should start I didn't realize it's it's like doing a 250 pound bench press you don't just go that's a respectable <laughs> weight and then try it <laughs> yeah I think I think I would agree with him I think DS9 is the best but it's you oh man and isn't that first episode like a two-parter with like a whole yeah it's it's like an lot. argument about like what is yeah. time yeah i was like this is homework why are you guys watching <laughs> homework <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely star trek yeah <laughs> that might be all the punks i know uh, it's i mean i i think that's i mean i'm sure there's like other ones that are like oh frost you heard punk. of frost yeah frost punk there's probably plant punk you sure like yeah. root punk something like that <laughs> right but the one that seem to just kind of pop up out of thin air which i'm now after having read a very very good article by you is not the case <laughs> it uh, became very popular online is the movement of solar punk mm-hmm. um and in my opinion an overtly optimistic and utopian uh way of thinking and i have my issues with it sure <laughs> and that's kind of what i wanted to talk to you about because i feel like nausicaa is the only movie i've seen do it right it's mm. it's not in many films because it's it's hard to draw plants. <laughs> it turns out. <laughs> but um, in short, uh, do you want to kind of talk about what the tenets of solar punk are? Sure. Yeah. And uh, actually, it could be a good idea because I I wrote an article about it a couple of years ago, but I've, I've I've sort of um I haven't kept up with it quite as much. I think you probably know it in its most more contemporary forms. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, when it was initially. Like it, I guess it's sort of like an art movement. It sort of started as like a kind of art movement, fan art and stuff like that online and started to gradually develop into this sort of like political thesis sort of thing. Uh, and I, I guess in, initially it was sort of about this idea that like climate change is real, it's happening. We can't avoid it. Um, and so the punk element is sort of this notion that like there is a dystopian reality that's that's approaching us in some way. We can't really avoid that. But the response to it, as opposed to a sort of like um, acceptance or whatever you want to call that in, in like a cyberpunk thing. Instead, it's let's do solar, let's do renewable energy, let's do um, green and sustainable and all that sort of stuff. Let's let's um, respond to a, an apocalyptic circumstance with like resilience and let's try and um, conceive of worlds where like, yes, very catastrophic climate events have happened, but people found ways of moving forward with like combining technology and sustainable agriculture and agroecology and all this sort of stuff. And so uh, that was sort of like the rough initial idea of what it was. Like, you know, when it first came around maybe like 10 or 15 years ago when it was very, very in its early stages, but it had this real, as you pointed out, like it has a very particular kind of aesthetic. Yeah, of like, high society high life mm-hmm. but it's a lot of plants but, yeah exactly. everything's like greenified and everything's got yeah. vines and flowers on it and everything like that and yeah. yeah 
it's it, it, it's like interesting as like a backdrop to like fantasy i guess because yeah, yeah. a lot of the early solar punk art was were like of course would be a nondescript japanese city right and yeah. it's covered in cherry blossoms and right, right. there are trains that run on tracks but underneath the tracks are these long beautiful blades of grass and on the right. interior of them are these really bushy plants that are just mm-hmm. vibrantly green and there's no advertising <laughs> but there are still skyscrapers yeah and yes, there yes. are still signs for like restaurants and hotels and stuff like that course, yeah. and it, it it gets conflated a lot with the cottage core movement. I don't know if you've. I'm, I'm oh, sure you've sure, like looked sure, into that. Yeah. But cottage core, the whole thing is like it, it is. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of fascist parallels around in cottage core. I could talk about that for a long, long time. <laughs> but um, in short, it's like degrowth and communal. And mm. solar punk has been the opposite. It is somehow hijacking infinite growth and making it green. Mm. And it bothers me yeah yeah (laughs) yeah so the single biggest impacting uh piece of solar punk media that's ever been made like truly it was attempting to be solar punk which is remember somehow communal somehow very agriculture herby Mm -hmm. green environmental but also tons of high technology is a clip that is posted pretty often <laughs> it's a yogurt commercial every like 72 hours it's on somewhere yeah it's like... yeah <laughs> and i remember the first time i saw that i actually sent it to you recently yeah, i was like yeah. it fucking sucks that this thing is inspiring <laughs> i know <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it hurts because we're yeah. so desperate for some sort of uh just hope somewhere right exactly <laughs> something that can be yeah the land is more than just dirt If you look after it, it will feed you forever. You're a smart one. I know you'll be okay come rain or shine. And remember, a business is only as good as its people. Yeah, like a hurricane just spawned off the coast of Florida, what was it, two years ago and hit Mexico Beach? And it was a Category 4 in 24 or 48 hours from nothing? It just not... became one and then hit it and just demolished something. It's like, yeah, the yogurt commercial the showed yogurt, my right. family being okay at a picnic, <laughs> but just pretty nice. Well, I think it's it's interesting you bring it up because it's, uh, again, I, I would say there's been like uh, a gap between what a bunch of like those, I, I wrote about some of this stuff in the article that you referenced, like, those early sort of theorizers or whatever you want to call them who were talking about this very utopian vision of what, not just what the world could be, what solar punk could do to get us there or whatever. And like, there's, mm-hmm. there's a pretty big gap between, I think, what that original stuff was and then what people currently, I think, know solar punk as, which is a very, very, like, it's vibey, right? It's like an aesthetic that you can yes. plaster over a commercial uh, and have it be successful as like a, whoa, wouldn't that be so cool? It's like, sure, it would be. Also, like, what the hell are we doing, though? You know yeah, I, mean? like, I want to do cottage core, but I want to keep my iPad. Right, yeah. Exa- I mean, it's, yeah. it's very much, as you said, right? It's the, the current version of it is very much like you've got a skyscraper, but because it's got solar panels on the top and, like, a gr- tree next to it that grows into it, it's like, that's cool now, right? It's good to do that. And it's like, well, it's kind of yeah, complicated. It's, yeah, we, we, we need a bit more than a tree that grows between two tall buildings. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is one thing that I love about Nausicaa. In order for us to get to this kind of green utopia, and this movie 
portrays like a dystopia for like 98% of it. It's hell on earth. There has to be a period of degrowth and we can do that smartly. We can plan that and we can, you know, address, maybe we expand certain sectors unnecessarily Mm -hmm. fast, maybe 3% GDP whenever your uh, GDP is in the trillions of dollars, maybe isn't a thing you can do every single year. Instead of admitting... (laughs) Or it, instead of uh, doing those things, we can do things like uh, rapidly degrow, uh, mm-hmm. doing rapid degrowth through things like uh, an alien invasion of bugs that sure. <laughs> produce yep. a poison. Mm-hmm. So no long, our economic systems are no longer in place. Or we could do it smartly and just yeah. I don't know, start communalizing food or something. But uh, this movie decides to go the apocalyptic route, and mm-hmm. for pretty good reason. Uh, we were talking about this off mic. Uh, Miyazaki, it's important before you analyze any of his work for the themes that he kind of plays with, it's important to know just how anti-war he is. He is one of the premier anti-war filmmakers, sure. <laughs> in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, there's good reason for it, too. So uh, you've heard the Francois Truffaut uh, quote about anti-war movies. Right? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I think Miyazaki actually clears that test. Oh, right on. Okay. I, I, I do. Um, he never shows wars where either side seem to be winning. It's mm. always suffering. Right, um, right. That's the case in Howl's Moving Castle. Where I don't, remember, I don't know if you remember that. he There's like the door with like four different places you can go, and there's like one only he can go whenever he's like in this raven-like form. And oh, it's just... Right planes shooting at each other and it's a mm-hmm. constant fireball and each time he comes back he's almost dead oh that's right yeah, i haven't seen that uh since it was released but yeah you're right it's because uh, i was really, gonna say it's really obviously good. it's also a big part of uh princess mononoke like which yes. i think has a lot of parallels with nausicaa in a lot of ways but that's a major part of that one he is extremely anti-war because when he was a child he watched japan get bombed to the ground during world war ii and it is so so clear in his work how much he is just like he's almost eternally pessimistic um in his work and we see that as he gets older because what's crazy about his work he he does the thing that we always we we tell our boomer parents we'll never do which is like you know (laughs) as you get older your politics become less radical (laughs) miyazaki really did do that (laughs) um i would argue nausicaa is outright eco-socialist it's one of the only pieces of media that portrays eco-socialism in a way that is like attainable where, where it's not like humankind is the virus that needs to be eradicated <laughs> you know like a right. like a malthusian documentary right, right. or whatever but it really does pitch cohabitation with nature yeah. as something that is not only possible but extremely easy to do <laughs> yeah it's it's moving right i mean the other, i think what's interesting also like to your point about uh the setting being this uh it starts with the sort of cataclysm or whatever it's it's interesting because in the uh, nausicaa is uh, adapted from like the first chunk of a manga he wrote like he, he was started making it and he got like a couple chapters in and they were like why don't we make this into a movie and he was like okay but he kept writing the other thing for another 10 years. So like the... Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's, he was working on movies and stuff at the time as well. So it's not like... It wasn't continuous, but he would come back every few months and write a few more chapters and that sort of thing. So you can kind of see this... Actually, the politics that you're talking about sort of start to develop in, in the the manga version because he's growing older and his politics are shifting, which is super, super interesting. 
but also there's a little bit more just a little bit more backstory in terms of the setting and and uh i don't remember if it's explicitly stated in the film but in in the in the book he, he's it opens with the prologue that's like um it says literally like uh industrial civilization spread across eurasia like it specifically mentions really yeah like the, this being like the setting is sometime in the future of our you know society uh, which is totally <laughs> fascinating i think but yeah. uh so it says you know industrial civilization spread from the west of the western fringes of, of eurasia all the way across the globe and it, it reached a peak and then it hit its inevitable decline because it was this polluting, corrupting mass and blah, 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 blah. And then it has this, they, you know, they experienced the seven days of fire, which they refer to very briefly in the film as yeah. the sort of apocalyptic event. And we can sort of, we could read that as like, maybe like a parallel to like some sort of nuclear war or whatever you want to call it. When you, when you see ultimately like what those, the warriors that are in the seven days of fire, what they're doing later in the film, it's like, a you know, it seems like a very specific visual call, call out to a nuclear weaponry, but um he, it seems like with that being the setting, he really is kind of making the point you're talking about, which is like, we can do this the easy way or the hard way, right? We can yeah. get to this uh, more holistic conception of, of how to uh, live with, with nature one way, or we can do it in the very, very bad way. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Yeah. We could do this on our own terms, or we will have to adapt in a way where right. most of us will die. Exactly. And I right, think right. that that's like, a, God, it's such a good such a good stance to take i have a read on one of those scenes um just kind of like bobbing in and out of this movie because it's a pretty simple story all in all right, even though right. i i think it's extremely inspiring one thing that i read as being incredibly optimistic is so these big guardians that we're talking about they're these men i i i've read them as kind of like masculine figures but they're yeah, like, no, like I, these men yeah. that are made of like a pink tar and uh, you could read that however you want it could be like the literal flesh of soldiers that have been churned in the machines of war you could read it as like the tar as a byproduct of building tanks and stuff uh, which i mean japan wasn't allowed to have a military for how many decades so i mean like you know as somebody who experienced the horrors of war and then there was no sort of like military uh i don't culture isn't like the right word but you know what i mean like this like o- this overseeing thing of like the yeah, military this industrial there. complex that we have here yeah yeah he's he's like able to kind of do like this outsider looking in and i read the in the scene that this like big climax in the movie when all the blood all the bugs are stampeding because they're trying to get their baby back uh, the uh, Uma Thurman of all people uh, commands this uh, massive titan to uh, do his weird like nuclear blast thing. Yeah, he does it in the first one, and it is a visually stunning yeah. frame. That frame is like like should be in a museum. It is filmed so oh, God, it's so good. And after the first one, it's a, it's literally it's a nuclear blast, and right, then right. he muscles up a second one, and you know very very obvious parallels to the two nuclear blasts in mm. America inflicting that on Japan but the machine itself this weapon of war that was dredged up after a thousand years of us not having it could not be rebuilt right and i read that as an extremely positive thing where it's mm. like if we let this military industrial complex um this like literal avatar of just mass death die it cannot come back Mm, and right. that uh, yeah. scene that it's extremely optimistic and this movie is so good at couching these little 
glimpses of hope in what seems like abject despair. Horrifying, like, yeah. Yeah. That's such a that's such an, a cool read of it because I, I think I I think I read it similarly, but I don't know that I had like that specific language for it because to, to me, you know, they talk about using that uh, giant warrior kind of throughout the film. It comes up as this thing where they're like, we're we're getting this thing ready because we're gonna basically remake the land so that it's ready for humans again because the, the whole thing with the 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 land currently is it's too toxic right like there's just too much the air yeah. isn't even isn't even breathable on a lot of the land the humans can't uh can't breathe it so the idea is we're gonna use this basically walking nuclear device to like decimate all that and then make the land usable for humans again and as you're saying they try it and it doesn't work and so it's sort of like we could try as we might as humans to like reshape and you know um, terraform or whatever geoengineer whatever yeah. you want to call it like the kind of perfect you know uh, climate for making industrial society work perfectly and without any issue but like it's not going to happen nature is a necessary component of society and humanity is now like a necessary component of nature they're, they're co kind of creating each other at this point because they're so enmeshed together after however many you know thousands of generations yeah it's it really is like uh it's almost like a grand resignation where it's right, you know, right. we we will never be able to conquer nature right right and we shouldn't try right no no we should right, we're trying right. our damnedest right now to bleach the oceans and like we'll right. find out that every hit that we do that way is 10 back at us exactly and right that's kind of i mean you could even do that read literally there for every absolutely yeah you know hundred thousand of those bugs they killed with that nuclear blast there right. were a million another more behind yeah, exactly, it. yeah and it's that's a good point too because it's also it's not a depiction of i don't think it's really a depiction of nature as like um something that is just like wantonly destructive and chaotic mm -hmm. and stuff like that it's really he pitches it in this and, and in his other films i think as like it's a relationship and so this is a this is a reaction to uh, yeah things that that humanity has done or certain parts of humanity certain communities certain organizations have done so that's a it's not just obviously we think of like disaster movie and that and, and those sorts of things it's it's nature as like this just chaotic force that we we can't deal with and it's just it's yeah. humans versus nature but this isn't really that i think it's much more like a somebody's been uh you know treating another person in this relationship like unhealthily and now there's there's an issue that's developing out of it the other thing that i wanted to talk about before we kind of talked about the movie is i think that miyazaki accidentally makes an anarchist argument oh right on right yeah so who are the only bodies that enact violence on nature it's the states oh. and yeah so these massive states are the Good only point. things that are capable of churning out these huge machines that all they do is kill and pollute and destroy there yeah. are communal societies that their capability of destruction is a lot lower right. and their capability of destruction is self-defense. And we see that a lot with the main characters. Um, I, I don't know if you could call it a commune, but definitely like her little society, the princesses mm -hmm. uh, society, she's protecting all their weapons are self-defense. It's like, right. it almost like a, like one of those powder muskets that you have to like, get in, like <laughs> right, put right. the ball in. Like, right. 
it's just enough to keep yourself separated from things that are trying to hurt you. Mm-hmm. However, these massive states that are, uh, their soldiers are adorned in things like World War One apparel. Like right, one, yeah, one society makes tanks. They, they make like an Abrams tank. Yeah, exactly, and they just right, destroy right. Uh, stone bridges that have been around for like 1600 years. Right. You know, like <laughs> they, they just, they do that. And then um, you have another one that seems to have regressed all the way back to feudalism and like the feudal order. And they're wearing knight's armor. They got knight's armor. Exactly. Yeah. But they still have guns. Like there are so many different arguments that you can make about this. And the one that I read, and I don't know if I believe this or not. I just think it's a fun way to think about the movie is that both of these are just as evil as each other, (laughs) which is like how barbaric and cruel we saw the feudal state identical to like the right, shit we right. were doing in world war one because we, we'd be like oh but i mean at least there weren't slaves right, right it's like right. no look at the level of destruction or you know people will sometimes refer to like somehow like a gun is a more humane way of killing somebody than you know Th- than a knife a, right because, is that, or like yeah. a sword. it's like where are we why are you splitting these hairs what are yeah, we doing yeah, the, how did we please, get here? please yeah, yeah. well why is this the bar that we're at? right exactly yeah yeah, he accidentally makes that argument, you know, where it's the only people capable of spinning up these weapons of war again that fast are well-organized states. What was the only group of people that were not actively trying to kill everything in their path? Right, yeah. It was the one that most closely resembled a commune. Uh, yeah, man, that's such a good point. And I, th- I think it's... I think I'm also accident- not pandering to my uh, guest either, by the way. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, it's again, it's funny because I think... Uh, it's something that resonates in his, some of his other stuff, like uh, you know, Princess Mononoke, like I mentioned before, has like sort of a similar resolution in it, in that it's yeah. like there's Iron Town, which is kind of like a it's a different setting, so that's like I don't know, you want to call it like a proto state because there's actually kind of a feudal system that's kind of developing there. Yeah, but um, that is a sort of thing that there's also the Empire is actually an existing thing in that film that like is you know one of the one of the problems. There's like there and those things being at war. Um, leads to this sort of chaotic destruction of everything. And then at the end, you have this weird little um, communalism that's starting to form out of the remnants of these things that have been destroyed. Like the Iron Town's gone, and the, um, the state that was is sort of in disarray and stuff. And out of the, the ruins of that, there's this more you know communalist uh, society developing. And I, do, I think you're right in that it's accidental, because I don't know that he... You know, he, he is like a very politically red guy like you know he was a, he was a marxist for a while and then he wasn't and he, he reads a lot but i don't know that he would identify himself with an anarchist like tradition or whatever i think he just has this sentiment that like this is how it ought to be and he's just gonna make art about you know what i mean like yeah and he very much does codify the state in in this movie as being a very traditional western imperialist style mm. uh like military industrial complex where you know from the knight's armor which looks like very yeah. traditional like french uh th- th- think like your your french uh medieval armor that's sure, what yeah. the guys are wearing and then the other side being a lot more of like your your german style world war one apparel and i forgot about that tank that's so funny those tanks just show <laughs> They just like show up and they like fuck everything up. And you kind of don't even question it at that point. You're like, yeah, I guess they would have tanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're like, of course. I mean, if you have like these planes that are like the size of like star destroyers, yeah, exactly, and you like yeah. you just crash them into shit. Mm-hmm. You just like it's nothing to you. 
the only people that can afford to do that are states that are focused on rapid growth and rapid asset accumulation via, I mean, in this case, land. And it's land that they see as their own, which can be also codified as like a Western-style ideology like the Manifest Destiny. So the, the more that I look into this movie, his politics are baffling because as we kind of walk down through his filmography, which I should have pulled up, and now I am pulling up. <laughs> I got a lot of it up. Don't worry about it. I've spent too much time watching his movies, so don't worry. Yes. I, I, Miyazaki, when he dies, I will actually be like yeah. unbe- unbelievably <laughs> uh, just rocked. We go from uh, Nausicaa, which mm-hmm. is, uh, in my opinion, his most radical movie that he did. He goes on, uh, makes a couple other things. Um, he goes on to his unfortunately his most popular movie and i think it's mostly because of branding my neighbor totoro which is completely and totally devoid of politics and is a movie for babies um he goes to kiki's delivery service which is you know very much like this discovering the self type movie after that he directs a movie that is also very anti-war in porco rosso Mm -hmm. where uh, a pig literally says that he would rather be a pig than a fascist Mm -hmm. And then things start to kind of become more and more devoid of their politics. And we start to see um, humankind start taking a backseat to the things that are happening in nature around them. Like Howl's Moving Castle obviously is going to be explicitly anti-war. But then we start looking at movies like Ponyo. And I'm thinking of, you know, uh, in Ponyo, there's like that scene with like the great wave that's coming and Ponyo's just running on this wave. And our main, our main character is just somebody who just kind of watches it. Mm. You know, he, he no longer has like the ability to control the stuff around him. He just kind of becomes a bystander. And I feel like that's very, very reflective of his politics mm. where early on, you know, him being a Marxist and... Um, clearly having some sort of issues with uh, Western-style states, which, I mean, I think literally anybody who has read would agree with that. <laughs> um, He goes on from that to just like kind of like this passenger role, and I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's his old age just kind of catching up to him and he just wants to be left alone, or if his pessimism's kind of finally caught up to him. Where, you know, you're young, you got that belly full of fire, we can change this, we can bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old, and then we end up with, like, yeah, shit's fucked up, it sucks. Yeah, it's funny you mention that, because he, I don't know if he still gives interviews that much, but in the 90s, he talked about some of this stuff in some of these interviews, like, uh, in Japan, like, a little bit more explicitly, because people would, people would, started to sense some of what you're talking about, and uh, they knew he was also, like, you know, a labor organizer when he was younger, and then he became, like, an owner of animation studio um so there's like obviously a change in his professional development there um and like i said he aged all this sort of stuff is going on and so people started to ask him about some of the stuff and they were curious and he, some in some cases he would sort of talk about it like more at length and and he like there's uh sort of like a, fa- a famous quote of his where he he said uh, you know marxism was a mistake that's what i realized that sort of thing and uh mm-hmm. i don't know how you know he, he maybe was being a bit you know glib about it but i think part of his thing was that he in the 90s or i guess it would be starting in the 80s and into the 90s he started to think about i guess these sort of like world historical theorizations and stuff about how like um you know labor power is the way to change history and that kind of stuff and he just for whatever reason he found that he was not impressed by that anymore he didn't he felt like from what i already felt like that wasn't what he was seeing you know being born out 
that he was you know disappointed in the way um, environmental issues had developed that there was not a cessation of like you know military activities across the globe despite World War II like you mentioned he saw it with this horrifying reality occur and he felt like you know there wasn't a lot changing on that front that, that despite interventions from organizers and stuff like that it just, it just wasn't the movement that he was hoping for and I think he really just den- genuinely did become pessimistic um, I think he found hope though in like you're saying in these sort of smaller local things and I don't know that he was consciously aware of an effort to put that in in the stead of the other stuff but um, his movies I think bear that out I think that they um, gradually put like uh, an emphasis on these smaller things or or less on the history making movement of people and more on like oh what if you could just find a nice little thing here that you could work on or what you know that sort of stuff you know what yeah I mean? yeah what well, if the state isn't going to take care of you you should at least be able to take care of the people you love very very book chen-esque <laughs> yeah no i think so i think and again i have no idea if he's like read any of this stuff i wouldn't be surprised if he has but like do you think miyazaki has googled murray book <laughs> <laughs> Do, do I think he uses Google or does he find it like an affront to humanity? You know, that's a good question yeah. in and of itself. Because <laughs> well, there, there's a moment that struck me because now that I've read some of these interviews and stuff like that of him in his later years where he's reflecting on his previously, he literally will say like, you know, I was a young radical and I'm, I'm no longer as convinced. He's not like a, he, he specifically is like also liberal democracy has failed as well, right? He, he says that as we, so he's not, um, yeah. He's not somebody who, who swapped one for the other. I think he's more, like you said, he's become much more pessimistic about these structures that we have in place. And so what's available to us politically is limited. Um, but w- one of the things that I was thinking as I watched this time, there's like a moment early on in the film in Nausicaa where um, they're looking at that tapestry on the wall that has like the old legend. Yeah. The, the, yeah, the folktale of like the this like hero who's going to come in and he'll be clothed in blue and on a, on a, he'll be walking in on like a sea of golden grain, right? Or that sort of a thing. And he's going to bring about like a sort of revival of a utopian community, right? And um, they're talking about this and there's the, this sort of like wizened sage character, like Lord Yupa, who was a, a sword master, they call him. He's like renowned for his whatever. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I'm not, I'm not looking for that. And somebody's like, no, you are. You're out here traveling the world trying to find that person. He's like, no, 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 I'm not looking for that. That's not what I'm doing. What I'm trying to do is see if it's possible for, uh, he says something like the tribe of humans to live or be swallowed up by the sea of decay. Like, are we going to live with it or are we going to be swallowed up and ruined by it? And I, I, when I heard it this time, because I've seen the movie before, but it's been a few years, I was like, I think that is sort of almost, you could see that as like almost like Miyazaki's like mission statement as well, in a way. Like he is also concerned principally with like everything else aside, like can human beings like live on this world and actually like thrive and succeed here and uh, live with each other? Or are we sort of doomed to be swallowed up by this chaos we've created on, on the planet? Does that make any sense? You know what I mean? Absolutely, yeah. Even with Princess Mononoke, where we see uh, the opening scene of that movie is like nature being taken over by this unspeakable evil force in the scene with the boar, where this boar is like being completely consumed by this weird worm-like, almost like Lovecraftian entity. Instead of having an ability like we do in Nausicaa, which is a lot more hopeful, we're saying like, you know, sink or swim, um, the option in Princess Mononoke is avoid sinking. Uh, right yeah 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 yeah. because you're gonna get you know grabbed by it and then you have the curse right like that yeah and then you're you're doomed like i'm i'm going to die unless i figure out how to restore some sort of order and that almost is a 
the exact trajectory of his politics. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because in that one, the... Obviously, you know, in Nausicaa, we get the setting, which is this, like you mentioned, this post-apocalyptic wasteland. So it's not like it's great, but there is a more renewed sense of hope at the end where in Mononoke, you start out and the, the gods of nature are all still there. They're diminished, but by the end, they're dead. Right? Yeah. Like, so there's, I think there's a hopefulness in the ending of that film and that there is a regeneration that occurs. But first, in order to get there, like they, you have to literally, I mean, they're called like the divine gods of nature or whatever, like the spirits yeah. are literally murdered. So like yeah. you can you can get to the other side, but there's no way to get there unless first we have to acknowledge that we're going through something. We've gone too far in that direction to avoid that, right? Yeah, he's Miyazaki <laughs> and team are really really good at what they do. Right, right, right. But that's I think you're right. I think it's all for him, like very deeply felt, and uh, it's not something that he would feel particularly interested in, like writing an essay about. But he he feels that this is the way that uh, humanity relates to nature and as he gets older he's he's less and less convinced that there's a quick solution to it you know and i think that's partly why he he, he moved away from marxism because he felt like there wasn't one categorical solution to it you know yeah and it, it's pretty easy to see why he became disillusioned as well just given you know japan a lot like america extremely conservative yeah and, right uh, you know, you name the social aspect, you name the political or economic aspect. I imagine after whatever it was, you know, 20 years of him being like an outspoken Marxist and literally nothing changing or <laughs> right, you know, right. at worst things getting worse. Mm -hmm. You know, even though you put your blood, sweat and tears into it and you help people form unions and you organize mm -hmm. labor and it's only gotten worse you can't really blame people for flaming out. Yeah, especially when it comes to, well, I mean, everything, but also like with his particular concern seems to be environmental politics and environmental issues, which is like, well, that's been a downward trajectory for the entirety of anybody living's <laughs> life, right? Like that's... Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Um, Adam, you have done a huge amount of writing on environmental issues. Yeah, so I wanted to talk to you about your article that you wrote about Nausicaa. I just oh, pull okay. it up really quick. Uh, yeah, I, it's, I really, I really like writing your uh, re reading your writing. Not Thank writing you, man. Your I really appreciate that. Um, my favorite way uh, that you talk about this uh, concept in Nausicaa of this kind of like rebirth of self through you know like like horrific tragedy. The, the the biggest thing with it is that we have to experience degrowth in some way, shape, or form. And if it isn't degrowth, just stopping growing yeah. and just being okay with what we have. <laughs> that would be another alternative that's pretty cool. <laughs> but um, the way that you describe it is undoing ruin. And I think that that is probably the way that Miyazaki would look at the world today. <laughs> I, I have to be honest. I also totally uh, ripped that off from a, a metal band, uh, the band Darkest Hour. It's a name of really. An it was not about Nausicaa, but it's just a lovely phrase. I think <laughs> like a, what a wonderful little title for something. So when I yeah. when I watched Nausicaa, I happened to think like, wow, that's sort of <laughs> seems appropriate somehow. Yeah. Um. One one thing that you brought up in this that I thought was really interesting is uh, you almost assert that parts of this movie are almost like a horror movie <laughs> um, mainly like humanity's actions towards the earth 
And I think that that's really, really cool given um, that the, the, that part of the article reminded me of that really funny parallel people like to do between Hayao Miyazaki and Junji Ito. Have you? I, I think Junji Ito may actually break you. <laughs> I yeah, I was gonna say I don't. I've actually just seeing the memes and stuff is enough for me to go. Oh, I don't know if I can handle this. I you know I barely made it through like the haunting back in '96. I don't know if I could do this. this <laughs> do, do, do you know enough about Junji Ito? Uh, just I think from seeing some of your tweets and stuff. Yeah, I'm like I, I, you're yeah. doing the digging for me. That way I can just <laughs> yeah. benefit from the analysis. Yeah, I love Junji Ito because uh, my, unfortunately my most cancelable opinion. I'm a big fan of Lovecraft's writing. <laughs> uh, he's like the author that's had the biggest impact on me, and it's a very very good thing he's dead. I want to point that out too. <laughs> the guy fucking sucked. But um, that being said, like his impact is obviously felt on Junji Ito's work, and I think that Junji Ito is the greatest living. Um, at least horror illustrator alive. I don't want to say horror author because mm-hmm. I think that um, Ligotti probably holds that position. Oh, right a huge, huge fan of it. You want to read something pessimistic? I was going to say, Holy yeah. Sh- I only know him through uh, his influence on True Detective, which again, like I made it through True Detective by like the skin of my teeth. That's yeah. like, <laughs> not even speaking to the quality of the anything, but just like that was like Carcosa was like no, thank you. I am yeah, <laughs> yeah. The stabbing scene. I'm sure uh, that whew, did that you was in. a scary show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As far as like Junji Ito goes, he is, you know, the premier body horror mm-hmm. uh, our author, artist, I don't know what you want to call him, sure. uh, of our time. He's in the hallowed halls of like Wes Craven. Mm. He's just like, just, just masterpiece. And whenever you compare the two, um, we talk about two different types of horror. And this is one thing I want to talk about is Junji Ito does body horror. And a lot of his stuff is... <laughs> a, f- a fun thing to do is to read Junji Ito and imagine that a Protestant wrote it because a lot of his stuff is like God hates you dude and he's doing <laughs> awful stuff to you so it's like a-, a lot of his stories are just kind of like ridiculous like I-, I read one my most recent one I read by him was a collection of stories called Shudder and there's like one where people hang themselves but as they do it they do it on this metal rope and this causes their head to fall off but then it becomes this spiritually large head that has like this like look of malaise and it just kind of floats through the air and it's just like it's like oh that's interesting but what's funny about Junji Ito as an artist is you know he's making that type of stuff it's literally like um, I I don't want to gross you out too much but um, (laughs) Uzumaki chapter 4 if you ever look up the scene with a guy who said that my love is so big for you it'll stop this car that uh, like like that is his art but if you (laughs) listen to him as a person all he talks about is how much he loves the Beatles and like how he was like animating a scene to Here Comes the Sun like literally he's just like this positive guy so his horror is very obvious Mm -hmm. you know it's it's the destruction of the self because of a supernatural power that hates you and then you look at Miyazaki's work and on its surface it seems very hopeful you know it's like it's like oh there's these beautiful rolling grass hills and spirited away or I mean Totoro the notable exception that's a movie for babies but like all his (laughs) other stuff where it's like it's like oh there's like a star of hope but as you actually go into it there a lot of them are like horror movies yeah sure (laughs) And um, you bringing it up where it's like, uh, it's a horror of uh, the hubris of human antagonism towards Mm. the planet. The absolutely, the the entirety of the movie is, it's it's a one-sided murder. The whole movie, it is uh, people who know better killing something, just, or at least attempting over and over again, and the person somehow refusing to die. 
absolutely yeah. love that. That's a good yeah. Well, because it's again that, that that scene with the where they resurrect the giant warrior and it and everybody's like it's too early, which is our in, our, in and of itself like what a bizarre thing like growing this uh, nuclear weapon and unleashing it at a certain point, whatever. But um, it can't do it right. Like we mentioned before, it can't get through and do it. And it's like again, there's a hubris there. You thought you could do something, even though everybody told you that it wasn't going to work, right? You're living yeah. on a planet that is literally toxic to you. And which you find out uh, through the course of the film, like, is actually actively purifying itself to try and make more room for the humans, right? Like, it's there's this process going, this metabolic process going where, like, um, I don't know the actual, the science on this is a bit shaky, but, like, the toxic, <laughs> the toxic plant and, and air and stuff is being filtered through those plants to then, you know, get down to, like, below the soil, there's this whole area that's, where like the water is now clean and the air is breathable by humans, all that kind of stuff. So it's actually, the earth is trying to rehabilitate itself for the benefit of humans and humans continually just say, they were just like, fuck right, you. We fuck. know better, right? We know better than that. Uh, and we can get in the way of this, right? Yeah. So um, I've seen this trick before. Right, right, like, You're trying to pull a quick one on me. And there's, there's, there's these moments where they kind of, the people who are continuing to antagonize the, the, the earth or whatever you want to call it they are recognizing that this is what got us here in the first place but they're going to keep doing it like there's a moment late in the movie it's super super fleeting but um before they resurrect the giant warrior where they're looking at this enormous like boat thing and um somebody says like do you know what that boat was used for i don't think it, it looks like it never flew and the other person says um i heard it used to be used to go all the way to the stars right it was a fucking spaceship is what it's implying right and now it's crashed yeah. here on earth and it's never going to go to the stars again obviously and it's just a, a husk of something and so you're sitting in the ruins of that saying that they used to be able to do that but now we're here <laughs> looking yeah. at it and we're going to bring the giant warrior back that got us to this point because we know better than that right somehow it reminds me of have you heard of the the i don't know if this one was true but it's it's such a fun story i got to tell this one to my daughter and she got a huge kick out of it have you heard about all the monkeys in the cage of the banana they weren't allowed to touch i have not heard this one there is a cage with five monkeys in it and there is a pedestal that's in the center of the cage and a handler comes in and he puts a banana on it and a monkey goes up and he grabs a banana because he's hungry and the handler comes in and with ice cold water splashes a huge bucket of it on every single one of the monkeys the monkeys hate this and they start running around they start fighting each other and then the handler leaves. The next day, they bring in a banana. A different monkey goes up and grabs it. They all get splashed with this cold water again, and they're all angry. After a couple times of doing this, the monkeys start preventing other monkeys from going up there and grabbing the banana. Because they always go, oh, well, there's always, you know, we're, we're going to get hit with cold water. So what the handler starts to do is he takes one of the monkeys out and he puts a new monkey in. So one of the monkeys that went through it, and a new mm -hmm. monkey in. So this new monkey goes, holy shit, a banana, and goes over. And right. all the monkeys grab that monkey, and it's like, don't touch that banana. Mm -hmm. So they pull out a second monkey, and they put in a new one. All of them go together, and they're like, don't touch that. And they keep doing this until every single one of the monkeys are out of there, until you have this cage of monkeys who've never been splashed with cold water, all scared to go for the banana and that's kind of how i feel about nuclear oh, warheads in this movie <laughs> is it's just like people it's like no you make the nuke because you make the nuke right, what do you right. mean oh my god 
You know, it's just, it's, we've been doing it for a thousand years. Right. It's always worked out well for us. Right. You know? Oh my God. And this time I'm going to be the one who doesn't touch the banana the best. That's so funny. <laughs> that is, that's exactly what it is though, right? I mean. Yeah. It's a bunch of people who've never experienced it going like, no, that's just what you do. I mean, you know, t- kind of along a similar line, I suppose, you know, I was at a, uh, like a lecture recently locally with like uh, a professor who does stuff with global uh, energy politics and all that sort of stuff. And oh, that's um, so cool. <laughs> well, so then during, you know, there's a Q and a portion and it was relatively casual overall, but there was technically like a, a Q and a portion, but it was people were sort of discussing stuff and tossing out questions and then responding to each other and then getting the professor to respond. There was like a, in that portion, there was a very, very, to me, very apparent sense that like, everybody just agreed that like nuclear energy was the solution to climate change that because it was clearly the cleanest the most efficient the most obvious answer because people would bring up because this person the professor would talk about you know transitioning from oil and transitioning whatever and how things have been not proceeding along the way that we anticipated 20 years ago blah 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 and somebody would say well all this is a matter of just hooking things up to nuclear just a shame that so many people are opposed to developing these things we're going to see that this obviously makes the most sense uh, in due time. Now, obviously, like nuclear weapons versus nuclear energy, they're not like one in one to one. I understand that. But still... The, but the, one can make the other. Yeah. Right, exactly. And they're also... I think what was surprising was that there was nobody in the crowd disagreed with that. Nobody was willing to say, oh, I, what do we think about this or that thing, right? Like, there was just a total sort of... Uh, like a settled science Yeah, thing. exactly, which it's I like, thought why was, even have the conversation? Yeah, which, yeah. again, whatever anybody's opinions about stuff are, it's more interesting to me that that debate, at least among a certain group of people, is no longer even worth having. Are you a nuclear guy? Me personally, I'm not, but yeah. Got you. I, I'm hesitantly in Camp Nuclear, mm-hmm. and it's solely because, like... What are you going to do? Right. Yeah, I mean, if, if we're not going <laughs> to yeah. slow the ship down, we may as well try to make steam instead. Well, or... this was like a uh, this was like um, a pro-nuclear anti-wind kind of group, like one of those, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, the fuck? Anti, Anti-wind? Anti-renewables except renewable, I mean, except nuclear. That was sort of the vibe, which I was like, I, this makes me uncomfortable. That is the yeah. foulest group. <laughs> I'd rather talk to a guy who loves fracking than a guy who says I hate wind. Are you out of your No, for real. Like mind? they were not they did not have any interest in like wind, solar, any of that stuff. They were like nuclear it's nuclear bust. And I was like, this is a little odd, but you know. Totally unrelated, but it, the uh, thing you're talking about earlier, I, I reminded me like the thing with the the giant warrior and like the sort of you know, horror element of it and whatever. Um, I learned later on that that sequence, although it's all like designed, you know, it's overseen and directed by Miyazaki, that particular sequence in the film was uh, like the key animator on it was uh, Hideaki Anno who, who made Evangelion. So like, oh, isn't that, which I think you okay. can kind of see. You know yeah, what I mean? absolutely. Like, He's good at drawing really big stuff. Exactly. Right. The stuff that's doing this horrifying <laughs> uh, planet destroying crap all the time. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> and also somebody who has this very, I think, um, specific relationship in how they depict like post-nuclear japan and, and oh what absolutely that for, for the environment and for society you know so. yeah there is like i mean this may be reading into it a bit too much but there is also kind of like this cloud of guilt for having participated so harshly in military industrial complex type activity just kind of like as a national identity in a lot of Miyazaki's work. Yeah. And I don't know if that's just his politics coming through or if it's one of those things where it's like, I'm truly ashamed that we ever were a part of, you know, this huge machine of death. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I think he, and certainly in The Wind Rises comes across most like to the forefront 
And that's like a, I think it gets like a very uh, fraught movie as a result because it's very much him trying to grapple with that national identity and that legacy. Well, also, you know, he all of his movies are about planes and, and, and all the movies about the wonders of flight They're and stuff. all yeah. about planes. That I'm so glad you brought that yeah. up. There's so many fucking planes in his movies. <laughs> That's right. Every movie has a plane. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. it's it's a huge part of the movie, too. I think that part of that's just, like, the marvel of flying. I want to sure. know if there's a psychosexual element to it. <laughs> I... I don't know about, I can't, I'm not going to touch that. I don't know. But I do know, like, which is why I'm, I'm not going to, people can draw their own conclusions. But his dad was like an, AV, uh, what's it called? Plane designer for. Uh, oh, that makes sense. Unless there's like a Freudian. Who knows? I'm not, again, I'm not going to, you know, but uh, yeah, his dad was a plane designer, I believe. And um, he, as a kid, was super interested in all this stuff, which obviously you can see throughout his films. And then. He makes the movie Wind Rises is kind of about that specific era, like World War II era Japanese aviation. Uh, and again, like I said, it's, it's a very kind of complicated thing to depict because you're like, he's on the one hand, he's talking about the marvels of this industry and what it created. And on the other hand, it's like, you know what they were doing, right? Like that was... That, that was to make things that would drop bombs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's... Yeah, it's a it's yeah. a tough one. And uh, the hell was I? I just lost my train of thought. But yeah, the point is like he has this fascination, and also like you said, this lingering sense of, of guilt. I think maybe both personally, and then he feels it sort of as a countryman, or whatever you call it. Yeah, it's a, it may be one of those things where just like as he's gotten older, sure, he's just like it could have been so much better. Yeah, no, I I hundred percent, yeah. I mean, so many of the planes in his things are not like powered by gas engines or whatever. You know what I mean? Like they have this sort of magic flight that they're capable of because of some other whatever. Um, yeah, or like a short burst rocket glider, yeah, which exactly. it's unclear how it gets the <laughs> right, fuel, but exactly. it works. But it and... just has happened to work for probably 1,500 years or something like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like he sort of leaves those questions out because again, I think you're right. I think he thinks like, look at what this could be. God was telling you it wasn't your time yet. You think? Seems to me he was telling me I was a pig and maybe I deserve to be all alone. You can't believe that. You're a good person. No, the good guys were the ones who died. Or maybe I'm dead and life as a pig is the same thing as hell. Now go to sleep. Yeah, it's so funny how, like, the two things Miyazaki does the absolute best in his movies, obviously food. Like, (laughs) he's almost become, like, synonymous with being, specifically Studio Ghibli, the best at animating food. That is also my metric for if you're a good filmmaker or not is if you film food in a way that makes it more beautiful than it could ever look in oh, real life. Righteous, yeah. That's why Paul Thomas Anderson, amazing filmmaker. Oh, wow. Every The Good breakfast call. scene and the dinner scene in Phantom Thread. Mm-hmm. That is perfect filmmaking. It's perfect. The steak thing in uh, Be Blood, isn't he drink? he's eating some sort of weird steak thing at the end of that movie. Yeah. <laughs> there's uh, there's also the <laughs> him pantomiming the milkshake. Yeah, That's food absolutely. as well. Yep. Hell yeah. <laughs> Doing like his food stuff. I, I don't know why. To me, it's always been like a mark of just immaculate filmmaking. Same with uh, Funny Games. When uh, at the very beginning of Funny Games, specifically in the remake, when the boys first come in and the eggs break and they're on the ground, it's so beautifully shot that mm. it's just Michelle Henneke, one of the greatest living filmmakers. Mm. And that literally is my metric I hold like any cinematographer I'm gonna be, to. I'm going to be thinking about this for a long time. Look at the way prompt. people yeah. film food. Quentin Tarantino cannot film food to <laughs> save his life. <laughs> I, I have 
it's just this is this is the cool part of having uh an attention problem no um, that's amazing i'm you, you find a thing and you cling to it. This is I don't I didn't have that metric for him, but I'm agree, I'm on board anyway. Fuck it, whatever. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Miyazaki's way that his team yeah. has animated food is like literally nobody's ever done it yeah, better. No, yeah. But the other thing is like how accurate the planes are. Mm-hmm. And my one of my favorite things, you know, like now that we're almost an hour into this episode, finally <laughs> talking about the animation style of the movie, <laughs> the way the planes land in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Belly first. I just, right, I yeah. love it, man. Uh, they land in the sand like that. They land in the water like that. And just kind of like speaking of the animation style, this had to have been groundbreaking animation mm. for the time, right? This 1984 yeah. when this movie came out. Again, just like a weird little trivia thing. You know, what's interesting is the animation studio, because Ghibli wasn't a full, its own ind- fully independent, like they didn't have their full staff yet. So they, they uh, contracted a team to help them with it and the team uh was this japanese studio that actually helped on a bunch of um rank and bass animation stuff like like the old uh, animated hobbit movie like really yeah yeah for real yeah they've done uh and then there was later on they did return of the king like so there's a bunch of this old technically a bunch of nausicaa animators also did like if you grew up watching any of that stuff you were watching the same wow yeah which is but yeah i think um it it was it did make a an impact visually at the time because it was like I think it was yeah it it was like such a visually striking thing and it was sort of um even just the way like the plants are drawn is just so interesting yeah I mean there's such a none of them are like normal yes exactly yeah Yeah. it's it's so cool um the other thing that really stood out to me is that scene right at the beginning of the movie whenever she's walking around and she's looking for that like big eye bulb thing from yeah, the ohm yeah. the, the, the dead carcass of the ohm she would never kill one she That's just right. wanted to take the bulb <laughs> off right. for a trophy I guess I'm not mm-hmm. sure um, there's a scene where all of these light beams are coming through this cave and yeah. one how did you even draw that Right, that spectacular and the other thing was they had these bugs fly through the light beams and it would change the colors of their bodies Yeah, yeah. and that had to have taken months because Miyazaki still to this day proudly proclaims that all of their frames are drawn pen and paper. Right. Yeah. And the fact that this was done on a like written medium with no, zero not, computer yeah, help, yeah. like just. I mean, the stuff like some of the ways that he visualizes like the uh, the the mass of ohms showing up and like their sort of eyes uh, like changing color as they get clo- whatever. Yeah. It's like, even just in terms of conceptualizing that, let alone executing it, it's like it's stunning. Yeah, it's it's really just super super striking. Um, and I think a lot of the way, I mean, I'm somebody who, as as alluded to earlier, I do not appreciate, or I do not, I'm not capable of appreciating a lot of horror imagery. And what's usually you would think like <laughs> bugs and insects and stuff, you're like, oh, this is that's like right in the wheelhouse of stuff I don't want to watch. Yeah. But um, <laughs> in this film, the way that they're animated, they, they they take on a sort of like personality, even though there's no it's not like Mononoke where you're getting like language from them, right? You're not getting language from nature. It's all, she, Nausicaa has to be the mediator for a lot of it. Um, but you still get from like the insects because of the way they're animated, you get a sense of like liveliness and, and uh, sentiment from them, which is like wild, you know? Yeah, and it's it goes beyond just like your typical, like, oh, it's a bug. So it's got pinchers at the front and right, creepy right. legs. The ohms have this almost like accordion-like body structure that is constantly contracting and expanding that kind of helps them repel forwards yeah yeah 
uh, also the other one that I really liked was that bug that was it was it was a ribbon eel, but it was in the air. Yeah, yeah. It, it had like the mouth of like a dung beetle and yeah. the body of a ribbon eel. And it's trying to attack her, and all she's just like, "Can you not?" Like she's right. never fighting back. Just right. like, exactly, right, right, asshole. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, like fascinating character. Also, like just her total like steadfast commitment to this sort of pacifism is puts her in so many interesting circumstances as, as the film goes on. You know? Yeah, like when when they first catch the Digimon, and it's like on her shoulder, and it like <laughs> right. bites her finger. Yes, exactly, right. And she's like, ow! But she like doesn't react, yep. and then the thing's immediately like, oh, you're cool. Yep, exactly. You know, This'll work out, yeah. Yeah, I wonder if you know even that's supposed to be like an argument for how we should handle nature. Like, yeah, oh, it's gonna like really hurt whenever we do degrowth for just a little bit, and then Things you That's a cool. very yeah yeah no you know That's, it's just it, you, you just yeah. got to do that yes you know, take yeah, the, the bite. If the relationship is about understanding that you know there's a mutuality there. It's gonna they need this a little bit, but then we'll be able to get to the next step, right? Yeah, I've hurt you a whole bunch. It makes right. sense that you want to hurt me a little. Exactly bit. right. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. Like like she says, you were just frightened. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Poor guy is just scared. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And, That's another uh, scene An- animated wonderfully. Yeah. Yeah, just, it's so good, man. The only thing in this movie that I feel like definitely felt like old animation styles is it costs a whole lot of money to animate people's mouths. Uh, It's the most expressive part of our bodies. So for the men, they just gave them these, like, (laughs) huge... I didn't even think about that. Yeah, they they all have, like... Do you remember Mythbusters? Uh, Yeah. They all have, like, the Jamie Heineman. <laughs> like, <laughs> Holy crap. I did not put that together. You're 100% right, yeah. Oh, my God. It's, yeah. like, every guy, yeah. It's, it's like, every Except single guy. Except for the guy. kid. Uh, yeah. Asbel. Yeah, that's up, right? Who is voiced by Shia LaBeouf. No way. Is wow. Asbel. Yeah. <laughs> what? How old was he at the time? He must have been... He was a child. I was going to say, right? Like, There's nothing to fear. <laughs> nothing to fear. <laughs> See? Nothing to fear. Right? You were just a little scared, weren't you? Yeah. The, do you know Kim Stanley Robinson? Yeah, yeah. Do you like him? So I've only read one of his full books. Was it The Red Mars? I wish. No, I really want to, but I've only read uh, New York 2140. Oh, I'm so glad that that's the book that you read. Oh, my God, man. We talk about... so. I have read his most recent book, which is The Ministry of the Future. Yeah. I yeah. think that's his most recent. He writes a lot. Yeah, it's tough to say, yeah. Yeah, that's like an amazing book because it talks about the very real threat of climate change that's coming up, which is mm-hmm. going to be like, we as Americans, we'll, we'll feel it, but we won't feel it on the level that like Bangladesh will feel mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. or like Indonesia will feel it. Um, there's a part in that book where the... They kick off this thing. It's called the. It's either the Ministry of the Future, Ministry for the Future. I can't remember, but um, India experiences a heat wave of like 120 degrees Fahrenheit for like nine straight days, oh and it kills like 20 million people. Oh my god! So they have to make a decision, and people are talking about like, oh, we need to make all these environmental approaches. Like, we need to start now. We need to start talking about cutting back, and then the Indian. Uh, representative at the Ministry of the Future is like, fuck you, I'm putting particles in the air to make it colder Mm. over where it is. And there's like this relaxed pace that everybody in 
the Western world, I guess you could call it. There was like probably the biggest culling of a population ever in human history that just happened. And we're telling them, be patient with us. And India's going like, literally go fuck yourself. Like I'm going to do what we need to do to keep people alive. I feel like the solar punk movement doesn't uh, address stuff like that very well. (laughs) And I feel like Kim Stanley Robinson, even though some of his stuff kind of slips into liberalism where he'll be like, you know, like his his dream scenario is everybody coming together and voting for the right thing. That was yeah. <laughs> you know, that's twenty one forty like, has a bunch of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, isn't the the big payoff of the book like everybody comes together for the biggest election of their life? <laughs> oh yeah, have you <laughs> have you read it? Yeah, it's like exactly what. Yeah, it's so interesting because he develops this whole uh, like future where very very sort of meticulously planned out about like how catastrophic it would be, flooded to that extent that it does, and then at the end it's like. What a big election we got! Like that's you think that's still what's going to be the case in this alternate reality where like people are surfing to work? Like this is, yeah. what? <laughs> um, but this uh, yeah, Ministry of the Future sounds like it's got a, a sort of much more like um, unclouded look at things because that, yes. that sounds much more yeah yeah because he's always been like the hopeful socialist right and right. as of recently he's kind of going the route of Miyazaki where it's right. he's he's kind of seen the writing on the walls. That was the sense I got from a couple interviews I saw. Yeah, he. So, I don't listen to the show anymore, but he did an interview with Chapo, and he talked a lot about, like, Philip K. Dick and his Mm. impact on science fiction and all this stuff. And they talked a lot about how it's like, why are you so hopeful? And it's like, well, someone's got to be. Sure, right. You know, it was like, like basically the... And I thought that was a really, really endearing stance to take. And that's kind of why I picked it up. And there's another thing in Ministry of the Future, completely tangential, but I think about it all the time. Anytime I go to a... uh, like a gas station or something like that that is in uh, you know like, like a Bucky's think like like a huge one where there's just like tons of people mm-hmm. oh you don't have Bucky's no do you know what a Costco is yeah absolutely yes. imagine yeah. if that was a gas station okay. yeah <laughs> they're nuts okay yeah, yeah so I'll go there and there's a part of the book where there's this girl who lives in Senegal I believe I think she's in Dakar is it Dhaka or Dakar? I can't remember. I'm from Jersey. All my vowels are fucked up, so it's... Yeah, yeah Dhaka. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of them's the capital of Bangladesh. The other one's the capital of Senegal. And I can't remember if it's Dhaka or Dakar. So whatever the capital is. And she's like, I know every single person in this city. And then she lined up to get water and she looked around and uh, she didn't see a single person she recognized. Oh, God. And it's like the scale at which we're living at, like the amount of our population that we are not providing for is mind blowing. Mm. Cause that's a city of like, I think in the book they say something, it's like 180,000 people. Mm-hmm. It's like, I didn't see a single person I knew there. Right, right. Think about how many cities in the United States have like close to a million people. Sure, and yeah. like, like Lagos has 24 million people yeah, yeah, yeah. and like a million live in like truly decrepit situations. The book does a really, really good job at being like, we have like, like almost comically underprovided for people. Right. Yeah. And now we are scrambling to provide for people and we don't know what we're doing because this, this we, doesn't yeah. promote growth. It yeah, just exactly. keeps you alive. That's interesting. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. I had been a little yeah. bit like confused by some of the conclusions in 2140, but yeah, now I'm, I'm curious mm-hmm. about this new one. Yeah. God, I just, I've wanted you on here for so long. Um, Anytime. Adam yeah, yeah. is an environmental writer. And he's a he's a very good one too. He'll downplay Thank it and you. go like, oh, yeah. 
<laughs> he's wonderful um, thank you very tell much. all the places they can read the words that you've written uh you know i'm gonna i i guess i still do use twitter regrettably right even though it's become at the moment it's, the, it's got it it's got a doge i was on gonna it say that's the, the twitter bird now at the moment so but yeah i'm uh, i'm over there uh my handle is ambinate a-m-b-i-n-a-t-e and that's you can find like a portfolio of some stuff over there if you're interested and uh yeah also your ambient music don't oh, that's right it's yeah. <laughs> also a good ambient artist Thank and that you was one much, of the first man. things we ever talked about was i found out you did Shit, ambient right. uh, music and i was like how do you feel about david wise and you were like <laughs> 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 you just like leaned in and you're like we're talking about David Wise. Oh, we're going to be talking about, yeah. And we, yep, I'll, I'll never stop talking about David Wise. Never, yeah. Yeah. Was he the best living, would you say? I mean, living and unliving, yeah. I mean, that's, uh, I mean, not just ambient, just composer. I mean, just, let's, why, best artist. Let's just. It's, <laughs> All that, right, fine. You, I've been worshiping it. The, the scene, <laughs> that scene in F for Fake where uh, Orson Welles is talking about the chapel. And he's yeah. like, oh, the Chartres Cathedral. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, can you imagine what it costs? Him? That's what I think about when I listen to David Wise's Donkey Kong Country soundtrack. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> What's funny is apparently at his shows, um, people will be like, you got to play the Donkey Kong right. things. And he'll do Sticker Brush Symphony just because it's a beautiful song. Sure, sure. And then he's like, now I'm going to do my actual compositions. <laughs> You guys can't just. That was like, 30 years you, ago, right? You morons right. came here thinking I would be doing like. That's amazing. I didn't. I forgot that that's how we. Damn, that's so cool. You know, it was wonderful. It's great. Anytime you want me to come back uh, and talk about Solar Punk or whatever else, please feel free to hit me up. Also, we do at some point we should talk about your opinion on Totoro. We should maybe that'll be next episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the dumb movie for babies. <laughs> <laughs> One of the hottest takes I've ever heard on your show, which is saying that's amazing. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's a watch that movie and try to find the conflict, please. I'm begging you. <laughs> you know that there's people on Twitter that were like, "Why does there always have to be fighting in books? Why can't a book just be vibes?" Well, then watch like fucking My Neighbor Totoro, and then think like every book that you read being that. <laughs> I mean, I. I respect the animation style a whole lot. I think the iconography is amazing. One of the most embarrassed moments I've ever had was when I was down at a friend's apartment at the University of Central Florida. We were there because we were going to Megacon, and it was 40 degrees, believe it or not, in Kissimmee. And we were staying at uh, a friend of a friend's boyfriend's literal converted shack. And it was 40 degrees outside and it was so cold that we all sandwiched together to like share body heat. It was awful. But I packed my Totoro Kigurumi because I thought that it would be a really funny thing to wear. So I'm at UCF and I'm standing outside my Totoro Kigurumi (laughs) while all my friends were smoking. (laughs) And they were in their normal clothes and I was in my Kigurumi. And this guy who had like nine women out on the balcony with him pointed and laughed at me oh. and I felt so, so bad. that now we're getting to the, the root of this Totoro hate. Now we're starting to Yeah, see it's, it's a movie for dumb babies. <laughs> <laughs> just for the record also, I understand context is important, but 40 degrees being that cold, I'm sorry, I just cannot abide. That. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I keep forgetting like up in the northern wastes up here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have a buddy who lives in a I think he lives in toronto oh um i are you see he either like lives in toronto or he lives in like a suburb of toronto and he's talking he runs all the time he's like mm-hmm. an avid runner 
or avid i forget how you pronounce that word and he um he was like man i hate running in sub-zero temperatures and i'm like god me too like if it drops below like 50 i'm not di- and he's like, say, no i mean literal literally. sub-zero temperatures for him like, if you say it's 40 degrees he's gonna be like you know is that negative or is that what are we talking about you know I mean? <laughs> like, like what the hell do you mean it's cold at 40 degrees yeah, like, we'll say that here. We'll be like, oh, it's like sub-zero outside today. That just means that the temperature started with a four. <laughs> like, <that's, laughs> 40 like degrees crazy. here is like the warm-up. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, winter's <laughs> ending. It's 40 degrees out. Like, <laughs> uh, I actually took a picture on my uh, uh, of my car thermometer two days ago. And I'm gonna send it to you because God. I want you to know what the weather's like. So, so h- how is it right now for you? Like, like what what has been the temperatures up where you're? Actually, it, it, this week is unseasonably warm. Today it was. Uh, this is good, good, good for you know. Always talking about climate change with me, but it was it was 60 today, and on Thursday it's gonna be 80. What the? That- f- <laughs> what? The f- <laughs> yeah, it was 102 degrees two days ago. <laughs> It was April 2nd. Holy shit. No, no. Uh, today is, it was 60 something and we were like, this is, it's way warmer than usual for now. 102. That's like, we, we don't really hit that in the summer, man, to be honest with you. I did a four mile walk today without oh, a hat on God. and I burned my head yeah, so bad. Say, <laughs> it's really bad, man. Brutal. I guess it's just the trade off, right? You know? God. Yeah. You know? 40 degrees is cold, but 102 is closer to normal. <laughs> you just wear shorts and you don't go outside unless it's the early morning. That I could, no, after that's the a life sunset. I could live, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're like, shit, I'm doing that now. <laughs> Damn. Adam, thank you again for coming on. And um, I think there's no better way to go out to this episode than the absolute banger of a track that I don't know the name of. But I believe it's called La 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 oh, La yeah. La. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>